0: If you your Bibles this morning, will be in Isaiah 2, <clears throat> Isaiah 2, and just to give you a little bit of um, scenery and geography of what we have done this entire year. We have gone through 11 small things. We've looked at starting, I think it was around December 30th or 31st of last year, Uh, That we began investigating and exploring what it means for us to be faithful in the small things that Christ has given us. And we looked at that passage in Scripture where it deals seriously with how we can be thankful. And we have finally arrived at our twelfth and final small thing. And it is stuff. 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 And we'll get to what this stuff means here in a few moments. But I hope you have found your spot now in Isaiah 2. Would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word? May you hear the Word of Christ this morning. We'll be in verses 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we might walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion... The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. For the morning that you have gifted to us, the breath in our lungs, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather as your church to receive the word that you have set aside for this very day. And so as we lean into this season of Advent, may we have our eyes awakened and our hearts warmed that this is a season of expectancy and hope, that our King has come And we await this king again in order to put the world back to the way that it was meant to be. And so, Lord, show us favor this morning. May you give us that one word. May you give us a couple of words to hang on to this morning so that we might grow in maturity in the things of the faith. We offer these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't think I have to persuade anyone Today, that Christmas is typically seen as a season of stuff, isn't it? We have spouses and children and grandchildren and moms and dads and grandparents and co-workers to buy for. And we buy this stuff to give these very important people these things. At the same time, Acknowledging that this is indeed a season of stuff, I want the Scriptures to teach us what we're called to do with this stuff. Not just to buy a gift to give to somebody, but to see it with different eyes. The stuff that we have, the things that we buy, to see it with different eyes, the way that Scriptures want us to see. And as you've already seen throughout the morning, and we've said again and again, that this is the day, the first day of Advent where we remember that the king has come and we realize that this God has put on human flesh and we also one day expect our king to one day put the world to rights where sin, death, pain, hopelessness are vanquished and are no more. So Advent tries to make us aware that we live in this time of tension between the two appearances of our king. Yet this tension between violence and pain and a time of justice and peace. Between painful tears of hopelessness and happy cries of hope fully revealed. Advent is this annual reminder that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. We acknowledge that, Right? It is not the way that the Lord intended it to be, and it's not the way that it is expected to be. And at the same time, we are reminded that it will fully one day be put back together the way that the Lord intended it to be. So the question I put before us this morning is this. How does the church, how do we practice hope with our stuff in this Advent season? How do we practice hope even with our stuff this Advent season. Let's look at what Isaiah has for us this morning. Isaiah, I'm going to begin with verse 2. Isaiah 2.2, 2, let me remind you what the passage says. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Here's the first point that we need to examine this morning. When God comes near... Broken people are drawn near. It's got a ring to it, right? When God comes near, broken people are drawn near. When you look at the entirety of the book of Isaiah, it's pretty much scholars break it down into three parts. You have Isaiah 1 to 39. This is Isaiah the prophet that is talking about pretty much his present day and this future life that is not too far from where he's at. And then you have Isaiah 40 through uh, 55. And then what you have here is this coming servant of the Lord, this suffering servant. And then you have the rest of Isaiah through Isaiah 66 is the third part in which this king will establish a new world, heaven on earth. And so where we're at in Isaiah 2, I want us to remind us that we're in that time where Isaiah is talking about this king who is about to show up on the scene. So if you look at Isaiah 2-2, your translations might say something slightly different. Uh, the one I read from this morning is a new international version. It says, and it shall happen in the future days. If you have a maybe a Lexham English Bible or a possibly an English Standard Version, they'll read, and in the future of the days, or maybe in the latter days, the language has a tendency, when we talk about this future day, we have this tendency to have this fear strike in us, especially in Americans in the past 50 to 60 years as it relates to when we hear in the future days or in the latter days, in the last days, because we associate a number of ideas with the last days. But when Isaiah refers to this future days or this latter days, he's not raising concerns about what we would call judgment day or maybe even the theology of the rapture that's not his immediate concern that's not what he's talking about church because the Hebrew word acharit here it means a time that takes place shortly after and so when he's talking about this king who is expected to show up on the scene he's not looking way down the line he's looking shortly after his present time Because when Isaiah writes, and it shall happen in the future days or latter days, he's telling us to pay close attention to a few generations down the road. And he's not telling us to pay attention to the end of the world as we know it kind of time. Just a few generations down the road, look for this king. So what happens in those, quote, latter days? Well, first he tells us that The mount of the Lord's house shall be firm-founded on top of the mountains and lifted over the hills, and all the nations will flow to it. Isaiah, if we back up and look in verse 1, he's being given a vision from the Lord about this king who is about to show up on the scene. And what you notice is, Is that when he says the mount of the Lord's house shall be firm founded on top of the mountains. This is prophet language. You can find it in Ezekiel. You can find it uh, in the minor prophets as well. This is the presence of God coming near. That's simply what it means. The presence of God coming near to a people. And if you notice with me in verse 2 what happens when this presence of the king comes near All the nations flow to it. One of the key themes that you find in the book of Isaiah is that God's true people will someday become a multinational community. A multinational community of worship, of peace, that will last forever. You see this in in chapters 2, 56, and 66. But also one of the themes that you see in Isaiah is that when this multinational community of worship and peace comes together, you have them bringing about a new world. A world that looks a whole lot like God's kingdom and less like this world. What you find in this passage is that God is trying to woo back the people of Israel. But at the same time, he's trying trying to draw other nations to himself in order to create a new people comprised of Jew and Gentile, Israelite and non-Israelite. Paul emphasizes this point to the Colossian church. When Jesus has uh, come onto the scene and through his life, death, and resurrection, he writes this to the Colossian church here, talking about here in Colossae. And across the Roman world, those who have professed this faith in Christ, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all and is in all. That comes from Colossians 3.11. The work of Jesus, the King, that even Isaiah awaits here in this passage is to unite all people, all ethnicities, races, tribes, and tongues to the very work of God himself, to the king himself. So let me say this, and you know my heart when I say this. If we think for a second that the faith is about a middle class and white people, we have greatly mistaken the work of God. We're nearsighted and naive if we think that the church is comprised only of those who look like us. We limit the work of Christ when we only tailor it to certain people and say, you look like me, therefore you must be a Christian. Jews, Romans, Turks, Grecians, Russians, Chinese, Hispanics, and millions of other people who speak other languages look completely different from us are drawn near to God in this passage in Isaiah because they see the redemptive work of a Middle Eastern olive skinned Israelite named Jesus. When the king draws near, what happens? Broken people are drawn near. What else happens when God comes near according to Isaiah? Here's the second point. When God comes near, Broken people desire to hear the Word. Broken people desire to hear the Word. You, look, you see this in verse 3. Isaiah writes, Many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When this multi-ethnic, Multinational people gather together according to Isaiah, they gather around in order to be taught by the Lord Himself. That's what we find in verse three. And as we gather around the Word each and every week, we realize that the Word not only directs our steps as God's people, but it also reminds us weekend and week out that the of our own worth, of our own purpose. And even our own role in God's story that he is bringing about for his own glory. That we sit in this story that he is working each and every day in and through us and beyond us. And he invites us into this story that we might live according to it. The word gives hope when we are in despair. You have been there? The word gave hope even in those times of despair. The Word gives life when we see and experience death time and time again. The Word, it gives nourishment when we are weak. The Word, it gives direction when we're lost. The Word, it gives us joy when we cannot take another step. And the Word gives us love when our hearts are overcome with hatred. Church, without the Word, would be a people wandering aimlessly. We wouldn't know which direction to go without the Word. And the Word itself gives us direction, even if we are confused about who God is and what He's up to. He continues to remind us of who He is, what He's up to, what He's done for us, and that gives us that vision. It gives us steps of where we are supposed to be going. We need this Word each and every week, each and every day, each and every year because without it, we'd be like a flower lacking the energy of the sun. We'd be like a flower lacking the nutrients of the soil or even the nutrients and the nourishment of the rain. We too long for that kind of nourishment that we find in the Word itself. Because God continues to speak to His people. Do not be uh, convinced for a second that God doesn't continue to speak. As if He only spoke to Isaiah and the prophets then. He only spoke to, uh, through Jesus then. No, 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 no. He continues to speak even to this day. And He continues to speak to His church. The people who we sometimes have this warring and violent and wandering and wrecked hearts. But even when we hear the word that is given to us, it takes our warring and violent, wrecked and wandering hearts, and it gives them peace and joy and abundance. And a fullness of life that we find in and through that word, which leads to our third point this morning. When God comes near, a warring people become a peaceful people. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. What's so important here? I mean, why in the world is Isaiah emphasizing this transforming of swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks? I think this is the reason why because when the king shows up on the scene a new era has been introduced. A new era has been entering into this world. It has been established through this king. Before Isaiah is writing you had another influential king who judged between the nations and settled disputes for the people. His name was Solomon. That's David's son. He is considered by the Israelite people. You find it throughout the scriptures as one of the most wise human beings that it had ever been. One of the wisest kings who had ever ruled over Israel. And for the Israelite worldview, wisdom was a necessary, hear that out, was a necessary asset for any great king. You had to not only show wisdom, but you had to live out wisdom as well. Because without it, he couldn't discern what was good, righteous, and true for the people of Israel in that day. It was necessary that this king would have wisdom and live according to wisdom. I think we know this. Those who are in leadership or those who have served served under leadership before, we've all been there, that we can throw out a vision for a people That's not too complicated. To throw out a vision and say this is the direction that we need to go, that's not very hard. The harder part is how to reach that vision that has been given and give steps in order to accomplish that vision. That is the more difficult task. But a king with wisdom could get Israel and the people of God there. Then you have this transition in verse 4. Says this, this language of turning swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Not only do the people of Israel await a king in Isaiah, you gotta think the years here in the 700s, 700 years before the time that Christ arrives, they are awaiting a king who has the discerning wisdom of Solomon, but also, as Isaiah says here in this passage, that they await a king who moves Israel into a new age of peace a new age of abundance that is opposed to the war and the hunger that is all around them." Let me say it again, in the 700s that Isaiah is writing in they have Assyria, another nation at the edges of Israel waiting to take them over and to take them into captivity. And then you have another country, another nation that is on the edges within a couple hundred years after this. Babylon. They are on the edges of Israel and they are about to arrive on the scene in order to take Israel into captivity as well. So what you find here is that there is this peace that there would be a war that exists no more and a peace where neighbor doesn't fight against neighbor. Where there's a peace even maybe where two siblings can share with one another. Right parents, grandparents? What is unique to the prophets of the Old Testament is that they're given a vision by God of a future world where the coming king will introduce and inaugurate a kingdom of peace and prosperity. So this is the reason why I think Isaiah mentions in the same sentence that the king who is wise and a king who delivers peace, or as he says, that a people of God will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, is that he is seeing This king who will come to give wisdom but also peace. One author writing on this verse says this, the means of war to beat their swords and the practice of war to take up their sword and the mentality to train for war, all of that that's happening in verse 4, they all disappear with the king who comes on the scene. The choice of agricultural implements, plowshares and pruning hooks is symbolic of the return to Eden. People who are right with God again. People where there is no longer are victims of the serpent's dominion. Where the curse is removed and there is an ideal and Edenic environment. There is a move back towards Eden when this king arrives on the scene. In short, Isaiah envisions a day where people of God will re enter Eden itself. This is a place where sin and brokenness are non existent in Genesis 1 through 2. What you have there is a time where the people of God have this harmonious and flourishing relationship with God, too. Church, if we testify that Christ is the king who Isaiah is talking about, if that is our testimony, if that's our confession, he is the one who doesn't merely demonstrate wisdom, but is wisdom himself. You see that in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. He's also the one who doesn't just exemplify peace, but is peace himself. So what you find unique about Christ in this king who has come, it's not just that he demonstrates these things. He is peace. He is wisdom in the flesh. But on top of that, if we have confessed that this Christ is that king, then we also have a place in order to demonstrate and practice the wisdom and peace of Christ in our homes and our neighborhoods too that it isn't just a confession about who he is but it is a confession that of what he's done and what he's doing in and through his people the church and since this king has come and since he rules over even us not you did this it's not just a story what we're trying to do is not save this person we have no ability to do that We have no power to save a single person. All that we're doing in this is that we are demonstrating a little bit of heaven on earth. And that's exactly what Jesus teaches us to do. He's not just saying, you pray this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. He's not just saying, pray this, but be this as well. God had given Isaiah a vision of reality that God would dwell with his people again. But never, I don't think Isaiah understood this fully, did Isaiah imagine that he would actually take on human flesh. That he would dwell with his people. This Advent, as we celebrate in this season, not just that God tabernacles with humanity, but he also, we are called to give thanks to this God in the flesh. And we do this by embodying His life in our own life. That we do this even with our smallest of stuff that we have. Hickory Grove, if we want to keep Christ in Christmas, and I'm borrowing from something I saw on Facebook not too long ago. If we want to keep Christ in Christmas, let's continue feeding those who are hungry. Let's continue to comfort the afflicted and the people in our community. Let's continue to love those who are outcast. Forgive the wrongdoers who have wronged us. And let's continue to give hope to the hopeless. If this season of Advent is about taking our stuff and leveraging it for the kingdom that the heavens would meet the earth, then let's do that. So as we continue to lean into this Advent season... Look for the smallest of ways in which you can take your stuff and leverage it for kingdom purposes, for your co-workers, for your spouses, for your children and grandchildren, for the stranger that you meet, and to show that the king has not been without us. He is not beyond us. He continues to dwell with his people And if there's a season to tell that story, it's certainly the season of Advent where He has come near. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this very morning that You have gifted to us. That as Your people, we have gathered around Your Word. That we have been called to be a people, not just who hear the Word, but be doers of the Word. And as we continue to celebrate that You have sent Your Son We lean into the work that has been accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. But may we continue to teach our children, teach our families, teach our neighbors of the goodness of who you are, because you are a God who has come near. That you're not a God who has... And so, Father, continue to remind your church of what it means to be your church. That we lean into your mercy and grace, but also demonstrate that mercy and grace this entire Advent season and beyond. And so, Lord, we offer these things in the name of your son. Amen.